recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christogenia.org. Today is Friday, September 12, 2014. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. This is the 21st installment and, and the final installment of our presentation of Paul's Epistle to the Romans here on Christogenia Internet Radio. I didn't think we'd have 21 installments starting this project out. I thought maybe a dozen. I, I hope it's been um, worth the time of the listeners. I want to begin tonight with a discussion concerning Paul of Tarsus and accusations against him by antichrists and so-called liberal theologians that he was somehow a misogynist. And when I say misogynist, please don't confuse that with misogynist, which is a race mixer. A misogynist, from the Greek word mysos, or hate, and gune, which is woman, a misogynist is a woman hater. Nothing is further from the truth, except that Jews and all those who have accepted their conditioning which is actually some people calling themselves identity Christians, do not understand the structure of a proper society. A proper Christian society is a patriarchal society. And the reasons which necessitate such a society are absolutely Christian. On the other hand, Christians must understand that the so-called liberation of women from the patriarchal society was a goal outlined in the perverse arguments of the Communist Manifesto. If you're a supporter of feminism, you're actually you're 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 actually carrying the ideals of the Jews who wrote the Communist Manifesto. It was a Jewish goal towards the destruction of God's creation from the very beginning to liberate women from the men of Adamic society. And that goal can be traced back to Genesis chapter 3. I wrote this paper about 10 years ago, if I had to guess, the end of 2004, I believe. And I've ex I'm sorry, the end of 2005, nine years ago. And I've expanded it for this presentation. Paul of Tarsus was not a misogynist. Many people today accuse Paul of Tarsus of misogyny or hatred of women, and no doubt because of some of Paul's remarks concerning the place of women in Christian society. The most criticized of these remarks is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we will read from verse 34. The women in the assemblies must keep silent, Indeed, they are not to be entrusted to speak in them. Rather, they are to be obedient, just as the law says. But if they wish to learn anything in the home, they must inquire of their own husbands. Indeed, it is a disgrace for women to speak in the assembly. Because of this passage, as well as a few other statements, Paul of Tarsus is indeed labeled a misogynist, and even some of the Paul bashers amongst identity Christians, have taken up the argument to fuel their hatred for Paul. It does not surprise me 
that in today's liberal feminist society, where even ideas generally perceived as being moderate or centrist are actually skewed far to the left, that this is a prevailing view amongst the Jewish-controlled, Jewish-media-dominated masses of the populace, that feminism is a Jewish cause and primarily a Jewish-led movement is easily demonstrated in the identities of its leaders, Emma Goldman, Betty Friedan, Gloria Steinem, Bella Abzug, and also by their own testimony, which is published regularly by their media outlets. The Jews in their own media brag all the time about what they're doing to white Christian America. Those statements when I wrote them were inspired by an article, for example, that ran in the Wall Street Journal. The article was entitled, How Do You Mark 350 Years in America? Of course, it was talking about 350 years of Jews in America. It was written by one Naomi Schaefer Riley. It ran in the Wall Street Journal on page W13 on September 9, 2005. And she was discussing a particular exhibit at the Center for Jewish History in New York. And she, a Jewess, boasted that there is much to be gained from studying Jewish life in America after the mass migrations from Eastern Europe. Jews were among the most prominent voices pushing for liberalized immigration policies, a strong labor movement, and rights for women. Nor were Jewish efforts always on behalf of other Jews. The end of the exhibit explores Jewish participation in the civil rights movement. So the Jews brag about how they're destroying us right under our faces. Paul of Tarsus was certainly at odds with Jewish thinking. What we see, we meaning socially conscious Saxons, what we see as a problem, the Jews see as an accomplishment and they take full credit for it. In their own words, they tell on themselves all the time. And sadly, most people do not even take notice of the process of the Judaizing of a society or of the consequences until it is far too late. Liberalism and progressivism are Jewish, and both feminism and civil rights are components of those. The New Testament accounts show beyond doubt that Polytarsus could not have been a misogynist or a hater of women. And here I shall endeavor to elucidate that in a plain and simple manner, for it is nothing which needs to be examined too deeply. In Acts chapter 16, Paul, along with Timothy, Silas, and surely Luke, who wrote the account, are at Philippi in Macedonia, where they congregated by a river for prayers and spoke at length to women there who did likewise. There, a certain woman named Lydia and her household were apparently the first Greeks of Europe to become Christians, lost Israelites returning to Yahweh, as Paul teaches in all of his epistles. They're the first Greeks of Europe who are recorded to have become Christians because there were already Christians in Rome. This woman, Lydia, later assisted Paul in his commandments after their brief imprisonment in Philippi. We see that in Acts chapter 16. 
It is also likely that she continued to lodge Luke, who stayed behind with her when Paul departed. At Beria, as well in other places, Paul preached to honorable women, as they are called, as well as to men. Acts 17.12, for instance, after Paul preached in a certain assembly hall, it says, therefore, many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. Of the converts at Athens, a woman named Damaris merited particular mention, although the precise reasons are unknown, Acts 17.34. Paul met Aquila and Priscilla at Corinth, and every time the couple is mentioned, it is obvious that the woman is respected by Paul every bit as much as her husband. And she is even placed before her husband in most of the passages where the two are mentioned, starting with Acts chapter 18. Paul entrusted a woman, and we'll talk about her at greater length tonight, he entrusted a woman named Phoebe to bear his epistle to Rome, and he recommended her very highly to the Christian assemblies there, also praising her for her assistance to him, which shows Paul's relationship, his daily, day-to-day relationship with these women that he encountered in his ministry was always very positive. Of the people Paul greeted by name in his epistle to the Romans, many of them were women, including Priscilla, Mary, Persis, Tryphahina, Tryphasa, the mother of Rufus and of Paul, and the other interpreters claim that even more of those people greeted in Romans chapter. And, and we'll see that later on tonight. Some of these people were commended for their labor in the faith or for their having assisted Paul in one way or another. Other women mentioned by Paul, Chloe, that she is the head of a household, and therefore it is probable that she was a widow and a woman of means. It is very probable that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in response to a letter from those of her household. Two other women, Euodia and Syntyche, are mentioned in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul said that, I beseech Euodius and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And therefore, his epistle may have addressed a disagreement between those two women. Other women, given special recognition, are Nympha in Colossians chapter 4, although the King James Version's <laughs> version in some early manuscripts have Nymphus as a man, that individual was actually a woman. Athia, in the epistle to Philemon in verse 2, was given special recognition by Paul. Furthermore, in Paul's letters to Timothy, he spoke especially well of Lois and Eunice, Timothy's mother and grandmother, and must have known them personally. Paul also sent Timothy greetings from Priscilla and from Claudia, whom history shows as the wife of Rufus and whom Paul is staying with at Rome when he wrote his second epistle to Timothy. Paul had excellent relationships with all of these women, 
and spoke well of all of them. He could not have been a misogynist. All of this shows that Paul certainly had all due respect for women in general and had warm Christian relationships with many of them. The opinions which are formulated in and acted upon by society today are not correct simply because the majority of modern people are persuaded by them. Christianity is not a democratic institution, but rather it is a theocratic institution. A woman's place was to be subject to her husband. Paul explained that all the time. Paul explained it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3. And these women who Paul had close relationships with must have all understood that. As Paul explained it, so did Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. And so did the law of God in Genesis 3.16. That's the beginning point of it anyway. And, and the actual creation account in Genesis chapter 2, where the woman is created to be a helpmate for the man. What kind of helpmate would a woman be if she was constantly contentious? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says, But I wish for you to acknowledge that of every man the head is the anointed, but the head of the, man, the woman is the man, and the head of the anointed Yahweh. The husband-wife relationship of Israel to Yahweh is a model for society where the wife should be subject to the husband so long as the husband is subject to God. Therefore, Paul wrote again in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, subject yourselves to one another in fear of Christ. Wives to their own husbands, as if to the prince, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the assembly. He is deliverer of the body. But as the assembly is subject to Christ, in that manner also, wives in everything to the husbands. And again, from Colossians chapter 3, Paul said, Wives, subject yourselves to the husband as is proper with the prince. Husbands, love the wives and have no bitter feelings towards them. The apostle Peter wrote these same things. In 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, Likewise, the wives being subject to their own husbands, in order that if some then disobey the word, through the conduct of the wives, they shall have advantage without the word, observing in fear your pure conduct, so a good woman can indeed persuade her husband and persuade him to be obedient to God, of which the dress must not be outward with braids of hair and applications of gold or putting on of garments, but the hidden man, in other words, Paul is also saying that women are also man. They're part of mankind. The hidden man of the heart with the incorruptibility of the gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious before Yahweh. 
For thusly at one time also the holy women who have hope in Yahweh had dressed themselves, being modest, being subject to their own husbands, as Sarah had obeyed Abraham, calling him master, whose children you have been born to do good and not fearing any terror. Paul, Peter, I'm sorry, Peter was telling his Christian audience that they were the children of Abraham and Sarah because that's who he was writing to. The men, likewise, living together in accordance with the knowledge that with the feminine is the weaker vessel, imparting honor as they are also fellow heirs of the favor of life. For your prayers not to be hindered. So if Paul was a misogynist, then Peter would also have to be labeled a misogynist. And if that is the case, then Christ, being Yahweh God, would also have to be a misogynist. The only admonition to the woman of Genesis chapter 3 for her sin is that unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Yahweh God created man and woman as a helpmate to man. How could he be a woman hater? It is not the man. It is not that the man was not to rule over women from the beginning, but that ostensibly, in Genesis chapter 3, man lapsed in his duty, which allowed the woman to be subverted. The original reason for the creation of women is so that man would have a suitable partner and an assistant in his endeavors, as Genesis chapter 2 states, and Yahweh God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helpmate for him. Throughout all of ancient society, a woman's original duty was to keep the household, as it was also in Greek society and the Greek society of the New Testament. We will give examples from Euripides soon and from Strabo. So it was with Paul, as Paul said in Titus 2.5. And so it was in the Old Testament, described at length in Proverbs chapter 31, which we will not read here tonight. Those who doubt the validity of Paul's instruction in the New Testament, they don't contend with Paul. They really contend with the entire Bible and with the societal norms of the ancient world, which are fully evident in ancient history, which are the norms that the founder of Christianity expected because it's written into his law. In his play, Alcestis, Euripides, this is maybe 430 B.C., 450 B.C., in there, Euripides puts these words into the mouth of his title character in a dialogue with her husband Admetus as she was about to die. And Alcestis is said to have said, Well then, remember to show your gratitude for this. I shall not ask you again for the return my act deserves, for nothing is more precious than a life. Alcestis had volunteered to die on behalf 
of her husband. But for what is right, as you will agree, for you love these children as much as I do. If you are in your senses, keep them as lords of my house and do not marry again, putting over them a stepmother who will be less noble than I and out of envy will lay a hostile hand to your children and mine. In other words, a wife and a stepmother would expect in her position as a wife to be the head of the man's household. And Alcestis was afraid that her husband would do that and therefore put her children at peril. Would this have seen that in ancient Greece a wife was in command of the household, even if she was a replacement for a deceased wife? Paul instructs that a woman is never to have authority over a man. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. And in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 12, we see that it was a reproach for women to rule over men at that time also, where it says, As for my people, mocking the children of Israel, Yahweh God says, As for my people, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. It's a reproach. O my people, they which lead thee, they which lead thee, cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. Whether it was the noble Deborah, and she was a noble woman, or the wicked Athaliah, does not matter. Neither situation says much of the men of their respective times. When women hold office over men, it is a reproach to those men and an indication of their own sinful state. And today we have people like Hillary Clinton, Janet Reno, Diane Feinstein, Barbara Boxer. Women like that are certainly a reproach to all Saxon men today. Along with the millions of women who have forsaken childbearing and normal household life for a love of lucre and status in the business world, in the political world, elsewhere in the community. Those who feel otherwise don't contend against Paul. They contend against Yahweh. They contend against the established order of his creation. From the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 28, keep a sure watch over a shameless daughter, lest she make thee a laughingstock to thine enemies, and a byword in the city, and a reproach among the people, and make thee ashamed before the multitude. Behold not everybody's beauty, and sit not in the midst of women. For from garments cometh a moth, and from women wickedness. Better is the churlishness of a man than a courteous woman, a woman, I say, which brings shame and reproach. Even courteous women, such as Deborah, can bring shame and reproach to men when they are thrust, when the women are thrust into public life with precedence over men. The men should be ashamed. But the sin is not necessarily 
on the part of the woman. From Sirach, chapter 19, verse 1. O laboring man that is given to drunkenness shall not be rich, and he that contemneth small things shall fall by little and little. Wine and women will make men of understanding to fall away, and he that cleaves to harlots will become impudent. Moths and worms shall have to him heritage, and the bold man shall be taken away. The writer of Sirach was not a woman hater. He was not a misogynist. Indeed, in chapters 26 and 28 and elsewhere, he speaks in defense of virtuous women women who recognize the role of women in the order of creation. He wrote in chapter 7, verse 19, Forgo not a wise and good woman, for her grace is above gold. From Sirach chapter 26, from verse 14, A silent and loving woman is a gift of the Lord, and there is nothing so much worth as a mind well instructed, a shamefaced, meaning modest, a modest and faithful woman, is a double grace, and her continent mind cannot be valued. A woman that honors her husband shall be judged wise of all, but she that dishonors him in her pride shall be counted ungodly of all. The introduction of women into politics and public life is an introduction of lust and sex into those same arenas. The introduction of women onto the factory floor, into boardrooms, into the offices of corporations is an introduction of lust and sex into those same arenas. There is no avoidance as much because of the incontinence of men as because of the vanity of women. When men are persuaded by beauty, they are easily corrupted by women, women who may themselves be manipulated by nefarious forces. As soon as the Jews liberated Christian women from their patriarchal society, the Jews came to own the society because they knew exactly what they were doing. From Sirach, chapter 9, turn away thine eye from a beautiful woman and look not upon another's beauty. For many have been deceived by the beauty of a woman. For herewith love is kindled as a fire. The wisdom of Sirach reflects the values of Hellenistic era Judea a century before the Edomites usurped the kingdom. Only men participated in the so-called democracy of Athens. Women were excluded from politics. Women did not speak publicly. And as Euripides' character, Ahithra, in his play Suppliant Women, says in lines 40 and 41, it is proper for women, if they are wise, to do everything through their men. 
In other words, a woman can accomplish what is good and sometimes what is bad through her husband. So Paul's admonition to women, not to speak in the assembly, but to learn and inquire by their husbands, as he instructs in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that was not a novel contrivance. Paul was not just making it up. It was already a part of Hellenistic and Judean culture. In fact, Athenian life was stricter than life for women in Rome. And Rome was starting to acquire liberal values in the first century, which was the reason for Paul's admonitions to uphold the order of Yahweh's creation. In Euripides' play, Hecuba, or Hecuba, at lines 974 and 975, the title character, who is a woman, states that custom ordains that women shall not look directly at men. In fact, in Euripides' time in Greece, women kept their eyes to the ground. They didn't look at men. They didn't walk through the markets checking out the men. The word translated custom in that passage in the Loeb Library edition of Euripides is actually nomos. Nomos is law. Everywhere in the New Testament, Paul's admonition against women wandering from house to house, idle, tattlers, busybodies, speaking things they ought not, was a normal concern long before Paul wrote such words. And in Euripides' Andromache, another play with a woman for a title character, at lines 943 to 953, the poet, through his female character, Hermione, expressed very similar concerns, where she is depicted as saying, but never, never, for I say it again and again, should husbands who have sense allow women to come visit their wives in the house. They are the ones who teach evil, idle women going from house to house. One woman corrupts a friend's marriage with an eye for gain, while another who has slipped from virtue wants company, in her vice, while many act from sheer lewdness. That is the source of the disease in the houses of men. In view of this, guard well with bolts and bar the gates of your houses, for visits of women from outside cause nothing good but only trouble aplenty. And they the words of Euripides in the middle of the 5th century B.C. The situations in the plays of poets such as Euripides very often addressed the pressing social issues of the day. And in the time of Euripides, there were also attempts to overthrow the patriarchal society. It's something that Jews have been doing for thousands of years. I cited Euripides here because when I wrote this, his writings were at hand, and I had read them recently. Yet, I may have referred to a plethora of Greek writers, even those closer to Paul's own time, to show that Paul was not teaching anything new to the Greeks or the Hebrews, 
concerning the treatment of women. Strabo, speaking of the Cantabrians of Iberia and some of their customs where women allegedly had influence over their kinsmen, political influence, Strabo says this, the custom involves, in fact, a sort of woman rule, but this is not at all a mark of civilization. And that's in Strabo's Geography, Book 3, Chapter 4, Paragraph 18. Didor Siculus, speaking of the mythical Amazons, and Didor Siculus wrote about 100 years before Paul. Strabo wrote about 50 years before Paul, speaking in rough terms. Speaking of the mythical Amazons, Theodorus Siculus wrote that the men, however, like our married women, spent their days about the house, carrying out the orders which were given them by their wives, and they took no part in the military campaigns or in office or in the exercise of free citizenship in the affairs of the community by virtue of which they might become presumptuous and rise up against the women. And therefore, in reality, in the Greek world, women kept the home, having no voice in the community nor any role in government. That is also the very role described in Scripture, starting in Proverbs chapter 31. From Sirach chapter 36, verse 22, the beauty of a woman cheers the countenance, and a man loves nothing better. If there be kindness, meekness, and comfort in her tongue, then is not her husband like other men. He that gets a wife begins a possession, a help like unto himself, Genesis chapter 2, and a pillar of rest, where no hedge is. There the possession is spoiled, and he that has no wife will wander up and down, mourning. In the book of Numbers, where the children of Israel were counted in the desert, only men were counted. There's a reason for that. Only men had a voice in the community, a political voice. Only men went to war. So it was in Matthew chapter 14. It didn't change. And again, in Matthew chapter 15, on the two occasions where Christ fed a great multitude with a little food, the women and the children were not counted. Only the men were counted. It is not that women do not count. Of course they do. Yet the woman's role in a Christian society is clearly defined. And Paul explains that role properly. Pity those who doubt the truth of such matters. Nothing Paul says is contrary to Old Testament instruction or practice. And Peter agrees. The patriarchal society is the design of that same creator who made both men and women. The strength of the man serves best in the public arena, and the empathy and nurturing tendencies of the woman serve best in the raising of children. With that, we will begin Romans chapter 16. From verse 1, 
I introduced to you Phoebe, our sister, some manuscripts have, your sister, who is a servant of the assembly in Cancria, that you shall receive her hospitably, worthily of the saints and the prince, and that you provide for her in whatever matter needed of you. Indeed, she also has been a patroness of many, even of me, myself. Phoebe is called a servant here. The Greek word diakonos, Strong's number 1249. Diakonos is more frequently translated as servant in the Christianian New Testament. Less frequently, it is translated as minister. The word is the same word which Paul uses of himself and of all the men who serve in the cause of the gospel or who served Christian assemblies in some other capacity. While it is clear from Scripture and history that women should not have rule over man, that women should not speak publicly, that women should not serve as community elders or be leaders of men, there are still many vital ways in which women can serve the Christian community. When we presented the book of Acts here last year, discussing all of Paul's travels in conjunction with the records provided, from the circumstances of this epistle to the Romans and the details of Paul's ministry, which he explained in Romans chapter 15, and from the list of men who in this chapter of Romans are mentioned in his company, we deduced that this epistle to the Romans was written while Paul was in the Troad at the time which corresponds to Acts chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. In the records of Acts chapter 20, Paul is in Greece. And from the records of his epistles, it can be determined that he was in Corinth, where he spent three months before returning to Macedonia and route to Asia and stopping in the Troad. He stayed there for seven days, during which this epistle was written. In Acts chapter 20, verse 4, there is a list of men who accompanied him to the Troad. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 6, we see that Luke had rejoined Paul by sailing to the Troad from Philippi in order to meet him. Cancria is a small village on the coast of the sea, on the eastern side of the Isthmus of Corinth. And today the village is part of the city. It's part of modern Corinth. It is very likely that Phoebe had been among those who accompanied Paul on his last journey through Macedonia and to the Troad. And she brought this epistle to Rome, as we see in Romans chapter 16, verse 27. So that is how Phoebe is in the Troad with Paul when he writes this, when this epistle is written, so that Phoebe can deliver it to Rome. Phoebe is also called a patroness here. The Greek word is prostatis, Strong's number 4368. And while it does not describe an official office, or capacity, in its masculine form, prostates, it is literally one who stands before, one who stands in front 
a front-rank man, if we were speaking of an army, a chief, a leader, a president, a ruler, or a protector, a guard, a champion, or a patron, according to Liddell and Scott. While we do not have records of whatever Phoebe had done for Paul or for the assemblies, Paul, having used this word, certainly held her in very high esteem. So we see that women can have an important role in Christian assemblies. They just aren't equipped to teach or to rule or to lead men. And, and that's the decree of Yahweh, God. It's not the decree of man. Verse 3. Greet Prisca and Aquilus, Priscilla and Aquila, my colleagues in Christ Yahshua. Now, the Codex Claromontanus adds the words here, and the assembly at her house. At their house, I'm sorry. Paul makes a parenthetical statement in verse 4 and says, who on my behalf, who on behalf of my life did hazard their own necks, to whom not only am I thankful, but also all of the assemblies of the nations. And then the elder Greek manuscripts begin verse 5 with the words, and the assembly at their house. Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned six times in Scripture, three times in Acts chapter 18, here in Romans, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and in 2 Timothy chapter 4, both in salutations, in epistles written by Paul. The name Prisca is a shortened, affectionate form of the Greek name Priscilla. Prisca is often Priscilla in some of the oldest manuscripts, but that is not the case here. The King James Version has Priscilla everywhere except 2 Timothy chapter 4, where it has Prisca, and that's simply because of the, the, the manuscripts that it was taken from. Priscilla and Aquila were evidently among the first Christians in Rome. And being expelled under the edict of Claudius, which happened approximately 49 AD, they resorted to Corinth, where they first met Paul. The first epistle to the Corinthians was written from Ephesus during Paul's three years' stay there. He spent a year and a half in Corinth, and then a short time later, he spent three years in Ephesus. And that can be told from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 19. And when Paul wrote that epistle, he indicated that Priscilla and Aquila were in Ephesus with him and had a Christian assembly in their own house there. That's in 1 Corinthians 16, 19. Priscilla and Aquila had traveled with Paul from the time he left Corinth after his long stay there in Acts chapter 18 and journeyed to Syria with him after stopping in Cancria, where Paul had his head shaved. Now, this is several years before Phoebe had taken the epistle to Rome. And we must wonder 
whether Paul first met Phoebe here, that's a possibility. When he was traveling with Priscilla and Aquila from Corinth to Syria, years before the writing of this epistle. From Syria, they passed through Anatolia, and they came to Ephesus, where they stayed with Paul while he was there. While Priscilla and Aquila were not mentioned in Acts 19, in the account of the trouble caused by the silversmiths in Ephesus, they must have been there with Paul when that happened. There are no details in Scripture as to how they risked their lives for Paul, but they were with him for a considerable time, probably about four years at least, and traveled with him as far as Antioch and back through Galatia and the rest of Anatolia. Paul left Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila, went to Cancria, sailed to Antioch. Priscilla and Aquila were with him. Then, departing Antioch, Paul departing Antioch, as I demonstrated in my Acts presentation, Paul wrote the epistle to Galatians on his way to Galatia. Priscilla and Aquila must have been with him. Then he traveled across Galatia and Phrygia and went down into Ephesus, and Priscilla and Aquila were still with him. Here, after they were expelled from Rome in 49 AD, here we see that Priscilla and Aquila are back in Rome in 57 AD. The next part of verse 5, greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first fruit of Asia for Christ. The name Epinetus is also a word. We're going to see a lot of this tonight so that we get a, um, an understanding of Greek names. The name Epinetus means praiseworthy. He is mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. But from the language here, he may have been one of Paul's first converts in Ephesus, which, which would be a first fruit of Asia. Ephesus was in the Roman province of Asia. The majority text here has Achaia rather than Asia. The text follows all of the older, all of the ancient codices, surviving major codices from the 5th and 6th centuries and the 3rd century papyrus, P46, all have Asia here rather than Akahia. The King James Version has Akahia. Verse 6, greet Mariam. Now, some manuscripts have Marianne with an N, Marian. Greet Mariam, who has toiled much for you. Greet Andronicus and Unius, my kinsmen and my fellow captives, who are notable among the ambassadors or apostles, who also were before me in Christ. Now, Mariam is a name taken from a Hebrew word. So this woman is ostensibly Hebrew. It's seen on several women in the Gospels. It evidently means bitterly or rebelliously. It can also be interpreted to mean rebellious people, if we interpret it as a two-word phrase. Verse 7. 
or bitter people, which fits. Christ was born of a rebellious people, and his mother's name was Maria. Andronicus, the name Andronicus means man of victory, and Unius is a Latin given or first name, which seems to mean youthful. So this man is probably a Roman. The King James Version and most later interpreters would make Unius out to be a woman, Unia. In, in Greek, it's difficult because the only um, designation between some male and female versions of names are which syllable is accented. And in Koine Greek, in the, um, there were accent marks in Koine Greek going back to the 3rd century B.C., and that's recorded in books of Greek grammar, which the ancient Greeks wrote. So the antiquity of accent marks is great. But in the writing style of the great Onkyo manuscripts, where all the letters were capital letters, the accent marks were not used. So in the original manuscripts, you really wouldn't be able to tell except from the context and except from the, um, the, the gender of related words, if there are related words, you wouldn't be able to tell whether Unius was a male or a female in the accusative case. However, here all of the descriptions are masculine, and there is no indication that Unius is a woman aside from the accent markings in some later manuscripts in the Middle Ages, they stopped writing great uncles with all capital letters. And they started writing in what was called minuscule. And minuscule employed accent marks and employed capital and lowercase letters. So they're more readable. The liberal progressive interpreters prefer Unius to be a woman because he is evidently here considered to be an apostle. The phrase episemoi and tois apostolois is interpreted here as notable among the ambassadors, which is a similar reading to what is found in the King James Version. But some commentators would interpret it to mean esteemed by the ambassadors, which is unlikely because the word episamus is an adjective, and that interpretation would seem to require a verb. Our reading is more natural to the original language, and there's no um, woman among the apostles. So therefore, there's no reason for twisting the phrase notable among the apostles once it's understood that Unius is a man and not a woman. So these are some of the um, theological debates found amongst liberal theologians in the mainstream. Now, I haven't seen this particular one amongst identity Christians, but I've seen amongst identity Christians, sadly, I've seen many 
of the ideas of liberal theologians creep in. Andronicus and Unius are only mentioned here. They were Christians before Paul's own conversion, and therefore, since it seems that they may have been Judeans, it is apparent here that Paul may have used the term for kinsmen in a narrower sense to refer to Judeans. The appearance of the word soon ahikbalotus, which means fellow captives, which is translated as fellow captives here, seems to present a problem in chronology for the epistle to the Romans. It seems to. It really doesn't. Because Paul has clearly, at this time, not yet been imprisoned when this epistle was written. Paul was briefly in prison once in Philippi, but not with these particular men, so far as we can know, and these men were Christians before Paul. So the account of the imprisonment in Philippi would not readily agree with that. The word ahikmalotus properly describes one who has been taken captive by force, or more literally, taken captive by the spear, which is, which is an ahikme. It's the root of this word. Therefore, the only way that this statement may be taken literally is to perceive that many Christians were already imprisoned in Rome, and they were, and that Andronicus and Unius may have been in prison in Rome when Paul wrote this epistle. And therefore, Paul is considering himself their fellow prisoner, even though Paul him, himself is not a prisoner. And this scripture in Paul's own writing that supports that that, that interpretation in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, where Paul says to remember them that are in bonds as, as bound with them, and then would suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. In other words, we should remember prisoners as if we were in prison with them. So that seems to be what Paul is doing here. Verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the prince. Greet Urbanus, our colleague in Christ. And Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those from the household of Aristobulus. None of these men like Andronicus and Junius, none of these men are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. However, it is evident that men whom Paul knew from elsewhere in his travels were thought to be in Rome when Paul was creating this epistle. Ampliatus is from a Latin word. It means large, and therefore he was probably a Roman. Urbanos is also Latin. It's not Greek, and it means of the city, and also for that reason it means sophisticated, and he is almost certainly a Roman. Astakas is a head of grain. It's a Greek word. 
Apollos means called in Greek. And Aristobulus is from a word which means noble counselor. Now, the Romans were bilingual. Greek was the lingua franca throughout the empire, throughout the Roman Empire. Many people in Italy that spoke Latin also spoke Greek. There were many Greeks in Italy who did not necessarily speak Latin. Latin. They were subject to the Romans. Latin was the official language of the Roman military and the Roman government. But Greek was spoken daily on the streets of Rome. I find it far more likely that a Roman could have a Greek name than a Greek having a Latin name. So where I see Latin names in ancient literature, I presume that those people are Roman. But where we see Greek names, because Greek had been, by the time of Christ, had been the, um, the language of empire, of diplom- diplomacy, of trade, for 400 years throughout the Mediterranean, when I see Greek names, I don't necessarily take it for granted that the bearer of the name is a Greek. He could be from Syria, Judea. We see in, um, in the account in Acts, we see many men who are clearly Hebrews bearing Greek names. So when we see a Greek name, they could be from a host of nations. When we see a Latin name, they're almost certainly Roman. Greet Herodiana, my kinsmen. Greet those from the household of Narcissus, who are in the prince. Greet Trufahinus and Trufosa, who toil in the prince. Greet the beloved Persida, who has toiled much in the prince. Now, the word household in these verses is only inferred. It's an idiomatic use of the preposition ek and the genitive plural definite article. As in the preceding passages, none of these people are mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. The name Narcissus comes from a Greek word meaning numbness or deadness, and apparently also was used to describe stupidity. It's not a name I would want in ancient Greece. The, word, the words behind the names Trufahinus and Trufosa, both of these are women, by the way, both of these names relate to luxury. And the name Persida describes a woman of Persia, and she may have been a Persian, or she may have simply been given that name because it was fashionable. Many critics point to the appearance of the name Herodion, Herodiana here, and claim that somehow it proves that Paul of Tarsus was an Edomite of the family of Herod, a claim which is contrary to testimony elsewhere in Scripture and which is actually quite absurd. Greeks often took their given names, as we've seen here, and that's my purpose for explaining this, the meanings of all these names. Greeks often took their given names from common words. The name Herod comes from the Greek word for hero, and more fully, 
the name Herodas most likely means Song of the Hero. And that was the name of the, that the Edomite Jews were using when they reigned over Judea. It is a given name, Herodas. And it was not originally a family name, except that the family of Herod the Edomite began to use it for their own family names. But the first Herod who bore the name bore it as a given name. It was not his father's name. It was not a family name. It was not the names of his brothers. They had their own given names. It is highly likely that many other Greeks bore similar names, and there are notable examples. There's a famous Greek historian of the 3rd century named Herodianus, practically the same name we see here. The name of another more famous Greek historian, Herodotus, is similar, and Herodotus means given to a hero, from the word hero, and dotus, which means given. So, simply because Herodiana appears here does not mean that Paul is kinsman to an Edomite. That claim is absolutely ignorant. <laughs> Excuse me. Verse 13. Greet Rufus, the chosen, in the prince and his mother and mine. In the closing salutation of 2 Timothy, which is one of Paul's last epistles, there are three that can be shown to have been written later. So out of Paul's 14 epistles, 2 Timothy is number 10. We see that Paul, I'm sorry, number 11, we see that Paul included a greeting from Pudens and Linus and Claudia, who were with him in Rome when he wrote that epistle. Pudens was the name of a Roman political family. And Rufus, which means red or red-haired in Latin, was a given name of, which is found among members of that family. Therefore, this Rufus has been connected with the Pudens of 2 Timothy chapter 4, and the connection is not unjust. It is not without reason. There have been a lot of studied commentaries and also a lot of hyperbole associating Rufus with the Putin's family and also associating Linus and Claudia from 2 Timothy chapter 4 with the family of a British king. There has also been a lot of criticism, some of it good and most of it bad, in reference to those study commentaries. And, and, and the hyperbole does not help the cause of manifesting the truth. But the dishonesty of some of the critics is far worse. We are not going to give a full commentary on this topic here, but only a summary of what we believe can be established. 
However, let us state that the identification of Claudia and Linus with Bertans and Rufus with Pudens and therefore a noted Roman political family first appears in known modern literature in the 16th century in Britain. There was a churchman, I forget his name offhand, I have it in my notes, in 1583 who first wrote this, and he cited the works of two earlier churchmen, churchmen from decades before him, whose, um, whose works are lost, and he cited them in the connections which we are about to make. So this isn't from British Israelism. This predates British Israelism by 200 years in British Christian scholarship. 200 years. Rufus. Rufus is indeed a reference to one Rufus Pudens. Paul also connects himself to Rufus Pudens here by greeting his mother and mine. Was Paul a relation through his own mother by marriage or even by blood to Rufus Pudens? There is a possibility, a strong possibility, but any extrapolation on what is seen here is only conjecture. And more information would be needed to reach any conclusion. So we don't have to reach a conclusion, do we? If we need more information, it is to our credit if we mention the possibilities and don't reach a conclusion. Paul of Tarsus was of a notable family of Pharisees who were also Roman citizens, being from Tarsus in Cilicia. There is evidence in Acts chapter 13, which is somewhat circumstantial, but which cannot be ignored, that Paul may have been related to Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul of Cyprus. If you read Acts chapter 13 in Greek, Luke says Paul, I'm sorry, Luke says, Luke writes Saul, who is also Paulus. And since in Greek there is no indefinite article, Luke may have been tensioned Paul, who is Saul, who is also a Paulus, because that is when he mentions Paul of Tarsus's surname when they encounter. Sergius Paulus, then it is revealed that Saul is also Paulus. And that's not a coincidence. Saul of Tarsus may well have been from the same family as Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus was the Roman proconsul of Cyprus. They certainly had the same surname, and they were acquainted. Sergius Paulus sent for Barnabas and Paul. 
he sent for them to see them in the account in Acts 13. Now, if this is a possibility, and it is certainly a strong possibility, then there is a possibility that Paul's family had connections with the Roman political class. That would also help to explain Paul's advancement in Judea at a very young age, which happened prior to his conversion in Christ. Paul was elevated very rapidly, but when he became involved in, in um, the, the, the repercussions against Christianity, thinking that he was putting down a heretical sect, he advanced very quickly. The possibility exists to connect Rufus Pudens to Aulus Pudens. Aulus Pudens was a Roman centurion known from Roman records who served in Britain. He is known to have served in the armies which defeated the famed British general and king known to the Romans as Caractacus. But his legion also had another British king as an ally, and that king was the British turncoat of Chichester, known to the Romans as Tiberius Claudius Cogidubnus, Cogidubnus, or maybe Cogidubnus, but the, the G should really be hard in Greek and Latin. This psalm, Tiberius Claudius, Claudius Cagidubnus, took the name of the emperor as his benefactor when he joined as an ally to Rome, which is why I call him a turncoat. Pudens is connected to Cagidubnus in a Roman section which was found in Chichester, so we know that all his Pudens was there. If Rufus is not all, then the two may have nevertheless been closely related. It's been assumed by some people that Rufus was Aulus, but that's not a necessary step, and, and it's only circumstantial. This leads us to Claudia. This woman, Claudia, mentioned in connection with Pudens in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. This woman was with all certainty a Breton, and the woman who later married Rufus Pudens. I say later, and I must say later, because if Claudia and Pudens were married when Paul wrote 2 Timothy, Paul could not have inserted the name of Linus into the manuscripts between the names of Claudia and Pudens. He would have had to mention Linus before or after. He would have had to said Pudens, Claudia, and Linus, or Linus, Pudens, and Claudia. He could not have said Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, which is the way the text reads in all the manuscripts. So they couldn't have been married when Paul wrote to Timothy 
Putin's and Claudia. But he was certainly married afterwards. It is often asserted that Claudia was the daughter of Caractacus. And while the evidence is circumstantial, this cannot be ruled out entirely. However, there is even better circumstantial evidence which, which suggests and, and was um, actually examined at great length in the 19th century by a churchman named Thomas Lewin. There is greater evidence that Claudia would, may have been the daughter of Tiberius Claudius Cogidubnus. Without doubt, Claudia was a woman of note who was also a Breton, but the daughter of which British king cannot be said with absolute certainty. And other British kings, hostages and captives, had moved to Rome as well. Now, the difference between a hostage and a captive, a captive, of course, is one taken prison in battle. And in the Roman Empire, they were treated usually treated very poorly. But a hostage was one who was turned over by a former enemy that had become an ally. And that would describe Koji Dubnus, the British king of Chichester, what was known later as Chichester. The, um, the hostage would be a family member, children, um, nephews, nieces, somebody close to you who would be taken to Rome. And this happened with Herod. This happened with all the lands of the kings that Rome conquered. They would be taken to Rome and they would be educated in Rome. And they would be held in Rome for two reasons. First, to promote Roman culture when they were sent home through the rest of the empire and, and Roman education. And, and secondly, as a safeguard to make sure that that king, when you have his children and his nieces and nephews as hostages, that that king would remain an ally of Rome. So there were many other, and after the wars with the British, there were many other kings, hostages, and captives in, in Rome. And Claudia may easily have been a hostage or, or a relation of one of them. But the evidence is strongest. But the circumstantial evidence is strongest that she was the daughter of Kaji Dubnus. And that's because of her name. Because Kaji Dubnus took the name of Claudius as Tiberius Claudius was his patron in honor of the emperor, who was his patron, and therefore, if he had a daughter, she would be called Claudia. By some of the lighter British Israel commentators, Claudia has been identified as Pomponia Grahicina. However, the two individuals cannot possibly be the same. This is a huge mistake. Sometimes Pomponia Grahicina is identified as a British princess, and that is wrong. The Roman historian Tacitus 
indicates with all certainty, and he mentions her, that she was born of a noble Roman family. Now, when the British Israel people spread this, it adds to the confusion over the, poss the real possibilities surrounding these historical people. Pomponia Grahicina, also called Grace, was a Roman woman who was married to Aulus Plautius. Aulus Plautius was a Roman senator and the Roman general who was victorious over Caractacus in Britain. Aulus Plautius later became the first governor of Roman Britain. According to Tacitus, circa 57 AD, Pomponia Grahicina was tried by her husband, as was the custom, for practicing a foreign superstition. When the accusation was made, it was customary for the husband to conduct the trial. That has been interpreted, that, that, that reference to a foreign superstition in the histories of Tacitus has been interpreted as a reference to Christianity. Now, both Christianity and Druidism were outlawed by the Romans. While it is possible that Pomponia was a Christian, this circumstance leads many to conjecture that she became a Christian and that Claudia, a young British princess, was committed to her care and likewise became a, a, prince, a Christian. Now, many conjecture that, but many of, uh, of the British Israel commentators have actually tried to identify Claudia with Pomponia Grahicina, and that's dead wrong. They're definitely two different people, and that's absolutely evident in the actual historical records. Many conjecture that Claudia, the young British princess, the hostage in Rome, was committed to her care and likewise became a Christian. Now, this is all pure conjecture and cannot be established with any certainty. So I would rather not admit the conjecture. I would rather point out that it is conjecture and we shouldn't go there. What is certain is that there was an esteemed British woman named Claudia, who married an esteemed Roman named Rufus Pudens. And this is known from the epigrams of Marshall, the famous Roman poet. Marshall came to Rome from Iberia about 64 AD. He was an Iberian by race. And he had many notable Romans as friends and patrons. Evidently, Rufus Pudens was one of his friends. Marshall, most famous for his hundreds of epigrams, wrote two which mention Claudia. And he calls her in one a foreigner, and in another he calls her a Breton. Now, this connection is highly criticized. And we will discuss that. While these two books of Marshall's epigrams were not published until about 88 AD, that does not mean that so many hundreds of epigrams were not written until 
88 AD. And that is a huge mistake that many critics like to make when disputing the possible connection of the characters in Marshall's epigrams in books 4 and 11 to the Rufus, Pudens, and Claudia of Paul's epistles to, to the Romans and to Timothy. We would assert that Paul mentions Claudia and Pudens in an epistle to Timothy, which was written about 61 AD. And when Paul wrote that, the pair were not yet married because he inserts the name of Linus in between the names of Pudens and Claudia. From Marshall's Epigrams, Book 4, Number 13, from the Loeb Classical Library Translation by Walter Kerr. Claudia Peregrino weds Rufus with my own pudence, a blessing, O Hymen, Hymen being the Greek, the Greek idol, the Greek so-called god of the wedding. O Hymen, be upon thy torches. He actually writes it out. O Hymenaeus, be upon thy torches. So well does rare cinnamon blend with its own nard. So well, mastic wine with attic combs. Not closer are elms linked to tender vines, nor greater love has the lotus for the waters, the myrtle for the shore. Fair concord, rest thou unbroken on that bed, and may Venus be ever kindly to a bond so equal knit. May the wife love her husband when, when anon he is gray, and she herself, even when she is old, seem not so to her spouse. Now this was published in 88 AD. That doesn't mean it was written in 88 AD. It could have been written in 65 AD, 68 AD, whenever they did finally get married. Marshall, being a pagan, fills his poetry with many pagan references. But for my own part, I would have translated the first line quite differently, recognizing a play on words. As Claudia, O Rufus, a foreigner, weds my own pudence, and, and that, translation, that translation observes that the name Rufus appears in the masculine of the vocative case and is therefore an address to pudence himself, and also that the word peregrina has a double meaning as a name for Claudia, since she was a Breton, and also employed in the literal sense here, the line embodies surprise that Pudens would marry a foreigner. So I like my own translation better. Claudia, O Rufus, in other words, what are you doing with her, Rufus? A foreigner weds my own Pudens, and that translation is very valid. From Marshall's Epigrams from Book 11, from number 53, from the Loeb Classical Library. And I quote, Though Claudia Rufina, now she's married, now she's called Claudia Rufina, she's given her husband's name in the feminine form. Though Claudia Rufina has sprung from the woad-stained Bretons, how she possesses the feelings of the Latin race, 
what grace of form she has. Mothers of Italy may deem her Roman. Those of Attica, their own. Of course, Marshall had a much greater appreciation for, for the um, women of Greece and Rome than for the barbarous British women, right? But he's saying that Claudia has as much grace as a Greek or a Roman woman. Well, well, that identifies Claudia as the wife of Rufus and as a Breton. So sometime between the two epigrams, between the time they were written, the two were married. This is after the death of Paul of Tarsus, long after to Timothy was written, but not necessarily as late as 88 AD, because Marshall wrote many, many epigrams. In spite of the criticism, it is very plausible that these epigrams were written as early as the mid to late 60s AD and published much later. It's common for a poet who has collected and published volumes, as Marshall did, to publish poems written over a long period of time for any particular volume. Marshall had over 50 very likely written and collected some of them for years before their publication. So the critics and the criticisms of the connection between Claudia and Rufus Pudens and the people in these epigrams, which Marshall is describing, does not hold water. We may, therefore, with certainty, with confidence, identify Claudia with the British and Rufus with Pudens and the future husband of Claudia. We hope to discuss this topic at even greater length where we encounter these names once again presenting Paul's second epistle to Timothy, Yahweh willing, perhaps sometime in early to mid-2015. I'm sorry. I can't do it all tomorrow. Romans 16, verse 14. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegonta, Hermes, Patrobas, Herman, and the brethren who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julian, Naria and his sister, and Olympus, and all of the saints who are with them. Now, rather than Julian and Naria, the third century papyrus P46 has Baria and Aeulian. And the Codex Ephraimiciri has Union and Naria. So there were problems with names from manuscript to manuscript. In the King James Version, these men are Asyncritus, which is Greek. It means incomparable. Phlegon, which is Greek. It means burning. Hermes. Hermes is the name of the Greek idol who was thought to be Zeus's messenger to Hades. Now, this Hermes was supposed by Eusebius, who didn't write until 300 years later almost, or at least 
270. Eusebius, the church historian, supposed this Hermas to, to have been the author of that famous early Christian work known as The Shepherd, which is something that we may never be able to verify, but Eusebius makes the claim. Petrobots apparently means father's life from a contraction of the words patris and bios. Herman apparently means a support. Philologus is a lover of word or thought. Julia in the King James Version, we have interpreted to be Julian, which is a Roman given name. Nereus is the name of a Greek sea god, a Greek idol of the sea. And Olympus is a variation of Olympia. None of these people are known elsewhere in Scripture, so far as we will ever be able to tell. Verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the assemblies of the anointed or of Christ greet you. And the Codex Claromontanus wants the last sentence. The holy kiss was a sign of fraternal affection, and it was a normal phenomenon of Greco-Roman culture and of Hebrew culture. Paul also exhorted such an act of respect among Christians in both of his epistles to the Corinthians and in his first epistle to the Thessalonians. Verse 17, Now I exhort you, brethren, to watch out for those who cause dissension and scandal contrary to the teaching which you have been instructed in and turn away from them. Paul is addressing a Christian assembly and therefore dissension is rebellion against the gospel and the laws of Christ. Scandal, as we explained, and as Paul had explained in Romans chapter 14, scandal is causing a brother to stumble. That we must avoid doing things which our Christian brethren take offense at or are entrapped by or which sicken them. A quote from Romans chapter 14. In that context, Paul was talking about foods sacrificed to idols. In the language of the Old Testament, as we elucidated when we presented that chapter, putting a trap, the word scandal is literally a Greek word which means a trap. Putting a trap before a brother meant doing something which caused that brother to disregard the laws of Yahweh or to keep them hypocritically. We are not to do that to our brethren. We are not to cause scandal and dissension. Verse 18, indeed, such as they do not serve Yahshua Christ our Prince, but rather their own belly. And through smooth speaking and fine language, they seduce the hearts of the innocent. As we demonstrated, presenting Romans chapter 15, the mediator of Christian disagreement is the word of God. And if anyone refuses to acknowledge and comply with the law of God, then they have an agenda. They are serving themselves 
and not the body of Christ. And therefore, because they are intent on serving themselves, they are being purposely divisive. Yahweh God does not change. While the children of Israel have grace from the judgments of the law, and while the children of Israel have propitiation in Christ if they sin, the law of God, without the Levitical rituals, remains as his outline for a just and moral society. Men who rationalize disregarding the moral laws of God seduce the hearts of the innocent. And if the children of Israel would only keep his law, then the body of Christ moves towards the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19, right here, we have Paul saying the same thing. Surely that of your compliance has reached to all. Therefore I rejoice concerning you, but I do wish that you are to be wise as to good and uncontaminated as to evil. Paul is making a summary here of the things which he had explained in the previous chapters, Romans chapters 14 and 15. Compliance is agreement with Christ and the law. As Christ told his followers, if you love me, keep my commandments. The children of Israel were put off from the community of Yahweh because they would not keep his law. That period of putting off or divorce from God is a period of chastisement. The prophets, and, and Paul explained in Romans chapter 13 that God used governments and authorities to chastise the disobedient. The prophets describe that period as a period of punishment for Israel the reconciliation which they are offered in Christ is offered so that they may choose to keep his commandments, which Paul informs us in Romans chapter 3. We do not disregard the law. Rather, we establish the law. Verse 20. Now Yahweh of peace will crush the adversary, or Satan, under your feet quickly. The favor of our prince, Yahshua Christ, is with you. And the Codex Claromontanus wants that last sentence. Yahweh is the God of peace. And the children of Israel have peace when they are obedient to their God, and when Yahweh destroys his enemies. The Gospel says in Luke 2.14, in the Christogenia New Testament, Honor to Yahweh in the heights, and peace upon the earth among approved men. And that's what the Greek says. Those whom Yahweh has chosen, they shall have peace, while all others await destruction. Here Paul makes a prophecy that 
as the King James Version has it, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. And the language is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, for good reason. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul expresses the desire to have visited the Thessalonians sooner than he actually had the chance to. But he summarizes some of the obstacles which prevented him from doing so. There he says to them, from verse 14, that you have become imitators, brethren, of the assemblies of Yahweh in Judea, which are among the number of Christ, because these same things even you have suffered by your own tribesmen. Likewise, they also by the Judeans. Those who killed both Prince Yahshua and the prophets and banished us and are not pleasing to Yahweh and contrary to all men, preventing us from speaking to the nations that they would be preserved, for which to fill their errors at all times. But the wrath has come upon them at last. That's an important statement. The wrath has come upon them at last. It's a reference back to the references by Christ in Luke chapter 21. These are the days of vengeance. But the wrath has come upon them at last. But we, brethren, having been bereaved of you, not able to see them, for a measure of time in person, not in heart, more abundantly with much longing, have been eager to see your presence, because we have wished to come to you. Indeed, I, Paul, both once and again, has the adversary, or has Satan, hindered us. When we examine the events of the book of Acts, surrounding Paul's writing of that epistle, it was not some spiritual boogeyman who was described as, ha as preventing Paul from preaching the gospel to the nations or persecuting the apostles wherever they went by doing things such as having them imprisoned. Rather, it was those Judeans who were, re who were rejecting the gospel of Christ and attempting to suppress it who did those things. When Satan hindered them, Paul's referring to the Judeans who did those things to him. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul discussed the mystery of lawlessness and connected it to the opposition of the adversary or as the King James Version has it, the working of Satan. In that chapter, Paul said in part, Now we ask you, brethren, concerning the presence of our Prince, Joshua Christ, and our gathering to him, that you are not to be quickly shaken from this purpose, and you should not be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter, as if by us, as though the day of the prince is present. You should not be deceived by anyone in any way, because if apostasy had not come first, and that's apostasy 
already come in the past tense. And the man of lawlessness then revealed in the past tense. Christ revealed them again and again. The son of destruction, he who is opposing and exalting himself above everything, said to be a god or an object of worship. And so he is seated, present tense, in Paul's time. He is seated in the temple of Yahweh, representing himself, present tense, in Paul's time, representing himself that he is a God. Do you not remember that yet, being with you, I had told these things to you? And you know that which now prevails, the princes of this world, for him to be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already operating, as the Apostle John attests, those who deny that Yahshua is the Christ, whom Prince Yahshua will destroy with the breath of his mouth and the polish and the manifestation of his presence. Whose presence is in accordance with the operation of the adversary, the satanic entity, the satanic collective, put them here. The working of Satan. adversity to God, rebellion against God, which race mixing is a part of, whose presence is in accordance with the operation of the adversary in all power and signs and wonders of falsehood and in every trick of unrighteousness in those who are perishing because they accepted not the love of the truth for them to be preserved. When we examine the events of the Gospels in the book of Acts, it was not some spirit boogeyman who was already revealed. It is not some spirit boogeyman who was sitting in the temple in Jerusalem pretending to be a god. Rather, it was the Edomite Sadducees who were the high priests pretending to have all the authority of gods. In Romans chapter 9, Paul expressed a deep concern for his brethren and kinsmen according to the flesh, those who were truly Israelites and who had not yet turned to the gospel of Christ. Doing so, he compared Jacob and Esau, and he explained that the one were vessels of mercy, a reference to those Israelites, and the other were vessels of destruction, Esau is the son of destruction. And Paul was describing the Edomites who rejected Christ in this passage of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Therefore, we see in these epistles to the Thessalonians that Paul saw that the Edomite Jews were Satan. They were the adversary. Those who rejected Christ and they are the ancestors of today's Jews and a lot of today's Arabs, if not all. Well, they're all from the same Canaanite stock anyway. 
The Apostle John thought that same thing when he said, Little children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that the Antichrist comes, even now many Antichrists have been born, from which we know that it is the last hour. They came out from us, but they were not of us. They were Edomites. For if they were from of us, they would have abided with us. But so that they would make, I'm sorry, but so that they would be made manifest that they are all not from of us. They didn't abide with us. 1 John chapter 2. Therefore, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the next chapter, Paul made an appeal for prayer, and he said, For what remains, pray, brethren, for us, in order that the word of the prince may move quickly, in other words, not be oppressed by these Edomites who Paul considers to be Satan that the word of the prince may move quickly and be extolled, just as even with you, and that we should be protected, and here he tells us exactly who he's talking about in reference to this Satan that's oppressing the word of God, and that we should be protected from those disgusting and wicked men. Since the faith is not for all, but trustworthy is the prince who will establish you and keep you from the wicked. The wicked for whom the faith is not is a reference back to what Paul was describing in the chapter before that. In the lawless of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and they are those same Edomite Jews who were persecuting the apostles of the faith. Paul considered the Edomite Jews of Judea to be the Satan of his time. And he told the Romans that they would be destroyed shortly under their feet. The only way... I'm sorry, I need a drink. The only way he could have known this is from Daniel chapter 9. There, we see the following prophecy and an answer to Daniel's own prayer concerning Jerusalem from verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. And upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins. Killing Christ finished the transgression of the Israelites who were there and making an end of sins because the law was put away. And to make reconciliation for iniquity by putting away the law. It's not that Israel stopped sinning. It's that Christ started forgiving as he promised Israel and to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. Know, therefore, and understand, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem, which happened in the time of Ezra, 
unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again, and the law and the wall, even in troublous times. And this sixty-nine week period, or four hundred and eighty-three year period, these being prophetic weeks, each week being seven years, is roughly and is to be demonstrated historically, is roughly from the return of Ezra to Jerusalem after 457 B.C. to the beginning of the ministry of Christ in 28 A.D. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince, the people of Messiah the prince, the same prince. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. The people of the prince are the people of Messiah the prince of verse 25. Although, in spite of the fact that this is denied and perverted in mainstream theology. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and this 70th week represents the ministry of Christ. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, meaning the city. And even until the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Of course, Paul had the warnings of Christ in Luke chapter 21, where he said, And when you see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. However, Paul must have known that this warning was also connected to the promised destruction of Jerusalem prophesied in Daniel as retribution for the cutting off of the Messiah. And Paul knew that the Romans were the people of the Messiah, as he has, as he has explained throughout this entire epistle. And they were the only portion of the people of true Israel in any position to destroy Jerusalem. Romans 16.20 is therefore a profession that the prophecy of Yahweh would be fulfilled and Jerusalem would be destroyed as it was written in Daniel and uttered by Christ in Luke. The city was destroyed about 13 years after Paul authored this epistle in 70 A.D. So we see that Paul thought the Jews, those who rejected Christ, they were Satan, and they still are Satan. Anything and anyone opposed to Yahshua Christ is Satan. Timotheus, my colleague, verse 21, and Lucius, which is a literal transpelling, a literal and actual transliteration. Timotheus, my colleague, and Lucius, 
and Yason, or Jason. And so see Patros, my kinsmen, greet you. Comparing the names of the men who were here with Paul to those men who were with him when he traveled to the Troad, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 20. And seeing Timothy, Luke, Sosipatros, who is only called Sopatros in Acts, and Gaius in the list, as well as the circumstances of his ministry, which he himself outlined in Romans chapter 15. It is certain that the epistle to the Romans was written while Paul was in the Troad and before his final version voyage, I'm sorry, to Jerusalem. Timothy became Paul's companion after meeting him in Lystra, which is recorded in Acts chapter 16. The last time he is mentioned in Acts is in the Troad with Paul. He is only mentioned elsewhere in epistles, but not in Acts. Luke does not write about himself, but he does use the third, I'm sorry, the first person plural, we, very often in Acts, so that we know that on those occasions he is with Paul. Luke does not write about himself, but seems to have become associated with Paul in Antioch during the events recorded in Acts chapter 15. The first time Luke uses that pronoun, we, is in Acts 16. Left behind by Paul in Philippi at Acts 16, verse 40, Luke joins him again in the Troad in Acts 20, verse 6, and apparently stays with him from that time through the end of his time in Rome, as we know from Acts 28, from the last verse, verse 31. Jason met Paul in Thessalonica, and Jason sheltered the apostles there when they were persecuted by certain Judeans, Acts chapter 17. Sosipatros must be the Sopater, as the King James Version calls him, of Acts chapter 20, verse 4, whom Paul must have met while he was in Beria, Acts 17.10. Here Paul refers to these men collectively as his kinsmen but they're not Judeans, not by any means that we could tell. I, Tertius, who wrote out the letter, greet you and a prince. Gaius greets you, my host and that of the whole assembly. Erastus, the manager of the city, greets you. Also, the brother, Coartus, or Quartus. That Paul wrote this epistle, in the sense of being its author, is without doubt. However, it could be told elsewhere that because of his poor eyesight, he had a difficult time actually doing the handwriting. One place that this is evident is in the final salutation of this epistle to the Galatians, where he wrote, Do you see in how large letters I have written to you in my own hand? So here we see that Tertius, a man unknown elsewhere in Scripture, actually penned the epistle of the Romans on Paul's behalf. Gaius seems to be the Gaius of Derbe of Acts chapter 20, verse 4. But here Gaius is said to be hosting Paul and his companions in the Troad. It may be that Gaius 
is simply able to provide for the apostles in this place. Erastus is called the manager of the city. And that is a title equivalent to what we call a mayor. But it is not clear which city Paul refers to. While in Ephesus, Paul had friends in high places, which is explicitly stated in Acts chapter 19 in verse 31. And from then, an Erastus is mentioned as being among Paul's companions. Erastus is mentioned again in 2 Timothy, where he is said to have gone to Corinth. This Erastus may have been one of the Asiarchs, the chief men of Asia, as the King James has it, who were friends of Paul's in Ephesus. He may have been, indeed, seems to have been one of those Asiarchs because it's from that time that he accompanies Paul. And Paul did have friends, as Acts 19.31 tells us, in high places. It's um, The critics of Christianity want us to imagine that all of Paul's companions, all of the people that accepted Christianity were, were dolts, morons, lowlifes, um, homeless, jobless people who never amounted to anything. And, and they think that of Christians today. And it's certainly not the case. Many men of means and, and influential and educated men were among Paul's companions and were certainly Christians and used their means to support the Christian message. And that's very clear if you actually examine the biblical texts. Now, with ability, you ought to stand fast in accordance with my good message and the proclamation of Yahshua Christ in accordance with the revelation of mystery having been kept secret in times eternal, but being made manifest now, through the prophetic writings, in accordance with the command of the eternal Yahweh, for the submission of faith, for the submission of faith to all the nations, all the nations, not all nations, all the nations, in discovering that Yahweh alone is wise, through Yahshua Christ, to whom is honor for the ages, truly, or amen. Concerning these verses, verses 25 through 27, the majority text and some late manuscripts don't have these verses here. They have them at the end of chapter 14. The 3rd century papyrus, P46, has these verses at the end of chapter 15, not here. The Codex Alexandrinus, and the Codex Alexandrinus is considered the um, parent codex of the Byzantine tradition from which the majority text was derived. That codex has these verses here and at the end of chapter 14. A 7th century papyri, P61, 
I normally do not cite anything from the 7th century and did not employ anything from the 7th century in my um, translation. But a 7th century papyri, P61, along with the codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Ephraim Siri, and Claromontanus, all have these verses here. And so does the King James Version. There's one other ancient notable papyri from the 5th century. That's the Codex Vaticanus Grecus, known as O48. And that ends at Romans 15.9. It doesn't have any text in Romans past 15.9. But these verses are not at the end of chapter 14 in that manuscript. So that, that that's interesting. Um, that's an interesting problem with the manuscripts in relation to Romans. The children of Israel were told in prophecy, such as that found in Genesis chapters 48 and 49, that they were going to become many nations. Paul explained in Romans chapter 4 that the faith of Abraham was the belief that his offspring would become many nations after the promises of Yahweh found in places such as Genesis 17, verses 4 through 6, or Genesis 35, 11, a continuation of the promise to Abraham through Jacob. Yet the children of Israel were put off in blindness, since they abandoned Yahweh their God for the gods of the heathens. Now, as Paul has explained throughout this epistle, telling the Romans in chapter 4 that they are from those nations which sprung from the loins of Abraham. Now, Paul is calling the Romans out of that very paganism which their ancestors went into and telling them that they are one of the very nations of the children of Israel who have a part in these promises. They must return to Yahweh their God through an obedience to his Christ. Submission of faith to all of the nations. A submission of faith is a consent to the commandments of God even though one is not bound by the law and one is not going to be condemned under his law. That's a submission of faith. That is the story. In the prophetic writings, which Paul refers to here, and Paul is teaching the fulfillment of those writings. If any Christian creed is in opposition to the words of the prophets, it is therefore not Christian at all. There's no such thing as a New Testament Christian when the New Testament writers are telling you that your faith has to be in accordance with the prophetic writings that, as Paul said in Romans chapter 15, that the writings are there for our instruction, and he meant to include the Romans in that statement. 
The only true Christian faith is in the fulfillment of the prophetic writings concerning the children of Israel. And that is what Paul had taught. Today, it is only found in what we would call Christian Israel identity or Christian identity. It's not found anywhere else. Tomorrow night, Primordial Two Seed Line, Part 2. Next week, Nahum, the Elkoshite. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening, and good night.